0: I invite you to please turn in your copy of Scripture to our text for this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. And as you turn there, you might notice that the chapter heading, especially if you have the ESV translation of Scripture before you, the chapter heading to Hebrews 3 is something like, Jesus is greater than Moses, or Jesus is superior to Moses. This is a, a subtitle. It has been added by the publisher. And these subtitles aren't inspired, but they help to give us a sense of, of what we are about to read of the context. And what we read in the opening verses there of Hebrews 3 is precisely this, that Jesus is superior, that he is greater than Moses. that, As we saw last week in verses 1 through 6, Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. He wasn't perfect, but he was faithful. But Jesus, as is summarized in verses 1 through 6, is faithful as a high priest and as the Son of God. Jesus is not just a servant, a created being. He is the beloved Son over God's house. And as such, Christ is superior to Moses in every way. And so the argument is that if the Hebrews, therefore, return to the older covenants, if they turn away from Christ and turn back to the older covenant types and shadows, if they turn back to Moses and to the temple and the priesthood and the animal sacrifices, if they return to these things, they will be turning back to things that are no longer a part of God's economy. God had established these things to point his older covenant church to the coming Savior. And now that Christ has come and finished the work of redemption, these pointers, these types, these pictures have passed away. They served their purpose, and now they have passed away. And having contrasted Jesus with Moses, the author will see now in the following verses, in verses 7 through 19, he is going to connect their followers' responses. He connects those who followed Moses in the wilderness out of Egypt and toward the promised land with his audience in the first century, those Christian uh, Jews who we know were the Hebrews. And the connection, as we'll see, is meant to be a warning. He's going to use that first generation of Israel as an example to warn the church in the New Testament. The warning is that the majority of the followers of Moses failed to enter into Canaan, into the promised land, because of their disobedience and unbelief. And the warning to the church, to us this morning, is that we must avoid those errors that the first generation of Israel made to learn from their folly, to learn from their sin. And this point that we'll see that is made to them and to us is that we are to persevere in our pilgrimage through this life to the promised land, to our eternal inheritance in heaven. And we're not to turn back. We're not to disobey, we're not to lose faith, but the call is that we are to persevere in our faith. Because after all, you and I are being led in this pilgrim life, not by Moses, but we are being led by our risen and exalted Lord. And we, you and I, like Israel, are in a wilderness situation. We are pilgrims in this life. And so with this background, let us now read our passage for this morning, and I will begin reading at Hebrews chapter three verse five, just for some context. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. What we see in these verses is Israel's rebellion recounted, as we consider our first point for this morning. The rebellion that is described here, summarized in verses 7 through 9, is the rebellion that's recorded in the book of Numbers in chapters 13 through 14, both of which we read this morning saw how in Numbers 13, God, through Moses, sent out 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, to spy out the promised land before Israel entered into it. And when the spies returned, we saw that they were not in agreement on uh, what they perceived or what they spied out in the land. Ten of the spies said we came to land which you sent us. To which you sent us, it flows with milk and honey. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. This is the report, the majority report, that the ten spies gave. And when Israel heard. Their report. They began to grumble and complain. And the majority of Israel's conclusion was this. We read in Numbers chapter 14, verse 4 Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. That was their conclusion from this report. And what we see in this verse is they decide they want to pick a leader to go back to return to Egypt. This was the revelation of their disobedience and disbelief in God. This was the evidence of it. That God had given them a leader in Moses. He had given them a promise that they will inherit the land. But now they are ready to turn back. They are ready and willing to fall away from the living God, to abandon his promises. But we also read that there was a minority report. There was two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who disagreed with the majority. They were going against the tide. Joshua tried to remind the people of God's promise and goodness. We read what Joshua said there in Numbers chapter 14. He said to the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. The Lord delights in us. He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And yet, loved ones, we read that despite this good report, this true report, and Joshua's reminder to the people of God's faithfulness and provision, the people rebelled. They made God out to be a liar, because they said that instead of bringing them out of Egypt to bless them, as God had said, remember the promised Abraham, they said that instead he brought them out of Egypt Kill them. They rebelled against God and against his appointed leaders. And we read that when God saw their rebellion, he said to Moses, Numbers chapter 14, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? Notice in this verse how strong the language is. God said they despise him. God clearly said, they do not believe in me. He continues on, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you, as he says to Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. We read, Moses interceded for the people, and God relented from bringing immediate judgment on that wilderness generation. That says a lot about Moses. God says, we'll start all over, and Moses, I'll make you the head of this new family. Moses says, no, Lord, spare them. Moses has this pastoral heart for these people that he has been shepherding through the wilderness. And God spares them, and instead, the judgment is that this generation will not enter the promised land. That only their children would be allowed to enter in. We read that God would cause this first generation instead to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all of them died. And then only Joshua, Caleb, and the children of Israel would enter into the promised land. We read about this in Psalm 95, verses 10 through 11. For 40 years, the Lord says, I loathe that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts. And they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, loved ones, what does all of this have to do with us this morning? What is something that happened thousands and thousands of years ago? How does this apply to the Hebrew Christians and and to us this morning? Again, what we need to see here is the connection between Old Testament Israel and the church. The writer is comparing Israel's exodus out of Egypt to the Christian life of faith. And there are some connections there. That like the Israelites, every person, every person who has come to salvation in Christ has been delivered by God out of the house of slavery and into the kingdom of the Son. We have been Loved ones, by Christ's death and resurrection, we have been delivered from bondage into sin and into death. And now we are free in Christ from these things. And also, like the Israelites, you and I are headed toward a land of promise. This land is not a piece of real estate in the Middle East, but it is the new heavens and the new earth. It is a city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. And so you and I, we have been delivered out of slavery. We have a destination, a land that we are on pilgrimage to. And just like the Israelites, we are undergoing in this life a time of testing in the wilderness. This present life, loved ones, is a time of of testing for us as Christians. Now, for many of us, that sounds bad. We don't like tests. Math tests, history tests, tests are not fun. Driving tests, I mean, you name it. Uh, When we hear that word testing, it has a bad connotation to it. Why would God test us if he loves us? One commentator notes about this and explaining it, that the tests and trials that God brings into our lives, they manifest or they show forth the reality of our faith. The tests that God brings into our lives, the trials that God brings into our lives, reveal whether our faith is true or not. We read this, Exact thing in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Deuteronomy, if you recall where Moses is addressing the second generation of Israel before they are going to enter into the promised land, Moses recounts to Israel and said, says, And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? That he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not, that God tests us to reveal what is in our heart in this pilgrimage that we call the life of faith. And as we read, he did the same to Israel. And what was in their hearts? We see that there was rebellion and unbelief. We see that their hearts were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we consider our second point this morning, the deceitfulness of sin and what it means. If we read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, where this is spoken of, the writer to the Hebrews says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now the warning here that we read about is against the deceitfulness of sin, as we see in verse 13. And why is this called, uh, the sin specifically, why is sin here described as deceitful? Well the word for deceitful here means a fraud or a sham, it's a deception. The Holy Spirit, writing through this author, is warning us about the fact that sin has this appearance of pleasure, and it holds out the promise of happiness and satisfaction, but it is deceitful, because in the end, it always leads to death. The description here is that sin is a sham, that it is a fraud. It causes us to turn from the truth of God's word in order to pursue a lie, to pursue a deception. We see this so clearly with Eve in the garden, don't we? There God spoke his word to Adam and Eve, and the commandment is, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The truth of God's word was spoken so clearly. And yet we read of Eve that she was deceived, as the New Testament says, by the serpent, the deceitfulness of sin. As the serpent spoke to her and said, you shall not surely die. In fact, if you eat of it, you will become Like God. There's something held out to Eve. Something that she believes. And we know that it was a deception. There was this appearance of pleasure and satisfaction in the sin. But it was all a lie. Whatever pleasure there was, we know quickly passed once both Adam and Eve realized the consequences of their sin. And they fled from the presence of God. And we see the same deceitfulness of sin in the context of Numbers chapter 13 and 14 that we read. And do you remember what Israel wanted? What was their decision when they heard the majority report from the ten spies? They wanted to go back to Egypt. This is how deceived they were. In their minds, they believed that slavery in Egypt was better than walking with God in the wilderness and seeing his hand of provision, seeing his hand of care, seeing his hand of leadership to them, his hand of protection, that's how deceived that first generation of Israel was by sin. There was before then this appearance or this sense of satisfaction if they returned to Egypt. And yet we know that that would have been a huge mistake. Because they would have been marching back to their deaths. They would have been returning to slavery rather than persevering in the freedom that God had given them. And the same, loved ones, was true for the Hebrews as they were considering returning back to Judaism. You can imagine their reasoning. And you can imagine the discussions that they were having together. Things like, let's, let's go back. You know, this, is, this is too difficult, this life of following the Lord Jesus. I miss the temple. I miss the sacrifices and the priesthood. You know, Christ may or may not be better, but at least if we go back, we'll be safe. We won't be persecuted anymore. We'll get our lives back. And you think about their reasoning and you see that even this was a deceit. Even this was a sham. Because we know that if they turned back to the older covenant, they would have turned back to something that had passed. They would be turning from the eternal life found in Christ to something that was not saving, to something that would only lead them to death. And sure, perhaps... It would have felt good at first. They would have had some comfort, some relative peace, some amount of satisfaction and and pleasurable security for a moment's notice for, for perhaps a lifetime. And yet we know that it would have all been a fraud, a sham, a deceit, because those things that gave them peace in this life were things that only lead to death and not to eternal life. And loved ones... Satan continues his deception through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin always has this appearance of lasting pleasure and peace. But it is a sham. It's a fraud. It is a deceit. And so the warning for us this morning is loud and clear in verse 12. Hebrews chapter 3. The warning comes in. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Leading you away by the deceitfulness of sin from the living God. So as you see, verse 12, the question is, how then can we be sure of salvation? How can you and I be sure that we are not among those who fall away? How can we be sure that we are like that seed that bears fruit, that grows, that matures? And not like that seed along the path or along the rocky soil. How can we have assurance in our salvation? The answer of scripture is that you and I need to fix our eyes on Christ. As we saw the conclusion in verses 1 through 6 that we are to consider Jesus to think upon Christ, to fix our eyes on him, to look to Christ in faith. Because Jesus, loved ones, is the true Israel. Think about Christ and the fact that, like Israel, he was tested in the wilderness. That he went there for 40 days, the exact number of years that Israel was tested and failed. And, Pastor Pastor Richard Phillips writes that when we study the devil's temptations against Jesus, we find that they correspond to the failures of Israel in the wilderness. That when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he didn't complain about the lack of food, but he satisfied himself with faith in God. And whereas Israel was uh, in their uh, testing by God in the wilderness... They murmured against him, and they tested God in return. We read that Jesus replied to Satan, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And whereas Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness, they grumbled, they didn't believe the Lord, they were unfaithful. We read that the Lord Jesus did not turn his heart away from God but that he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The Lord Jesus reproved Satan, unlike Adam and Eve, by saying, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so, loved ones, what we see in the Lord Jesus is perfect obedience. And so when we then trust in him, his obedience, we read in the gospel, is credited to us, and our sin is credited to us. And so if this is your hope this morning, take comfort. Be assured and know that he will lead you home. The confession of faith in chapter 11, verse 2, the way it explains this is that we are to receive and rest on Christ and his righteousness. And I love those pictures of receiving and resting in Christ and his righteousness. That it was his life of obedience and his obedient death by which you and I have salvation. And we hear these comforting words from the Lord Jesus as we consider what it means to receive and rest on Christ and his righteousness. We hear these words from the Lord Jesus in John chapter 6, verses 39 through 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, loved ones, whereas the deceitfulness of sin leads to death, it is a sham, it is a lie, it is empty, what we read is that trusting in Christ, receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness leads us to life, to eternal life. The promise is that all those who trust in him will be raised up on the last day. And in the meantime, in this life, what the Lord has given us, has given to you and to me, is The means by which our faith in him might be strengthened as we journey through this wilderness. And one of the means that he has given us, that is spoken of here, is that he has given us one another. He has given us this church, this communion of saints, this community of believers, of brothers and sisters in Christ, that we might do something very specific as we're instructed here in the text. We see that we are to exhort one another daily. We see there in verse 13. We are, we write, to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day. What does it mean to exhort? We don't use this word Very often, it sounds like a very biblical word, doesn't it? Well, what we see is that it's a word that is very encompassing and that includes the ideas of, of encouraging, of comforting. It includes the idea of pleading with somebody, of warning somebody. All of these ideas are included in the word of exhortation. To exhort. The idea here is that we are, as believers, to find ways to encourage one another and to strengthen one another by our words and by our deeds. You know, think back again to that scene in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14. Think back to that scene that we read. What was unfaithful Israel doing? They were doing anything but exhorting one another. We read about their grumbling, their complaining, their rebellion. And in opposition to that, what was faithful Israel doing? What was Joshua, and what were Joshua and Caleb doing? We read that they were exhorting. They were encouraging. Joshua, again, we read, tried to remind the people of God's promise and goodness. He is the one who said to the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. As we look at Joshua's words of exhortation, Joshua's words of encouragement, of pleading with Israel, what we see is that they are all words that God has already spoken to his people in the older covenant. Joshua is not just giving them compliments or platitudes, but what Joshua is doing is he is reminding them about the word that God has already spoken to his people. He's reminding them of the promises that God has already given. He's driving them back to the truths of God's word. And here we see that he is exhorting Israel, encouraging Israel with the truth. So, loved ones, as Christians living in a covenant community, we need to remind ourselves how much we affect one another as we... Consider this command that we are to exhort one another. We need to remind ourselves again and again how much our words and our deeds either build one another up or tear one another down. How much we affect one another. Consider how many one another passages are in the Bible. I'm going to list six is for your consideration this morning. John chapter 13, verse 34, we're commanded to love one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 16, we're commanded to live in harmony with one another. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, the command is that we are to care for one another. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, We are to comfort one another. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, that we are to forgive one another. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, that we are to submit to one another. And we see here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, that we are to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. What we see here in Hebrews chapter three verse 13 is that we are to be consistent in our exhortation. He says, "Everyday, you believers, as you gather on the Lord's day, as you go about your week, and you can imagine this was a small community that perhaps met more frequently, saw each other more frequently, as they were closer together, this probably wasn't a commuter congregation. The idea is when you run into each other, at the store in the marketplace, when you visit one another in your homes, exhort one another every day. And for us, it's as easy as a phone call, as a text message, as a letter, as an email, to exhort one another every day, consistently. And there's also, we see in verse 13, a sense of urgency about it. He says, as long as it is called today. That as long as we live in this moment of redemptive history, as we're walking through this wilderness together as brothers and sisters in Christ, walking toward the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, that we are to exhort one another today the sense of urgency that it has to happen consistently and it has to happen with a sense of urgency. Pastor John Piper, actually he's not a pastor anymore, uh, but John Piper, he puts it this way. He says, God has designed his church so that its members endure to the end in faith by means of giving and receiving faith-sustaining words from each other. You and I are the instruments by which God preserves the faith of his children. He says this key phrase, perseverance is a community project. Just like God is not going to evangelize the world without human faith-awakening voices, neither is he going to preserve his church without human faith-sustaining voices. And clearly, from the words, exhort one another, here in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, it means all of us, not just preachers, we depend on each other to endure in faith to the end. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26, verse 2, summarizes it this way. says to us as believers, It is a duty of professing saints to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as help them to edify one another. Performing services for one another and to one another that edify one another. The responsibility we see here in the Westminster Confession of Faith as it draws this instruction from Scripture is that there is a responsibility on each of us, as we said, to exhort, to encourage. But there is also, loved ones, a responsibility on us to be willing to receive the exhortation, to be willing and present in this communion of saints, this church, to receive the exhortation that is being yelled out to us by our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we live in an increasingly isolated society. And even as we are more and more connected electronically, we seem to be less connected in fellowship and uh, personally with one another. There's technology that allows us to connect, and yet there's less intimacy Most of us are working longer and longer hours. We're tired. We commute. The road can tire you out by the end of the day, by the end of the week. It's so easy. It's so easy to pull away from the community of faith, to pull away from the communion of saints, to pull away from the church and say, "I I just want to stay home this Sunday. I want to skip Bible study during the week. I, I want to skip events at church. I just, I just want to be alone. And what you are doing when you do that is you are not giving your brothers and sisters in Christ the opportunity to exhort you, and you are missing out on the opportunity to be exhorted and encouraged by those who are in the church, the communion of saints. The Westminster Confession of Faith echoes this exhortation from Hebrews And we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25, that we are to stir one another up, love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Friends, we have one who has gone before us, one who passed through the wilderness, who has achieved victory for us through his obedient life and death. We are to... Look to Him in faith, because the sure promise of Scripture is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and He will raise us up on the last day. Amen.